Pray with me. Well, Father, I want to just start and say thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for bearing the full weight of God's just anger at our sin on the cross. Thank you that you have loved us so much that you would do this for us. Apart from your death and resurrection, we are helpless. And so in behalf of all God's people, I say thank you and we love you. And all God's people said, amen. Well, Good Friday. You feel the tension? There were crickets in the first service, just like the second. Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I have the great pleasure of opening up God's Word with you. Um, Good Friday is hard, and it's good at the same time. So how about this? We just say, good evening. Good evening. Still the <clears throat> somber. I want to I ask you to do me a favor, to participate with me. Um, the 5 o'clock service um, was fully engaged in this. So here's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting full engagement. Okay, can we do this? You have no idea what I'm about to ask you. So I'm, I might ask you to do something ridiculous. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to list off a number of sins. And as I say the sin, if you have committed it in the past year, I want to ask you to raise a hand. If you've committed a second one, I'm going to ask you to stand. And if you've committed a third one, I'm going to ask you to clap. And I'm going to list off a number of these. Now, just so you all know, um, I chose sins, every one of these, that I have personally committed in the last year. So in case you're concerned that someone's going to think you're less godly than you are, um, we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Somebody give me an amen on that one. Amen. Uh, And so we're going to try this. I'm going to sit down so that I can uh, fully engage with you. You guys ready? How many of you have lied in the past year? Terrible human beings. How many of you have acted in sinful anger in the past year? Have you been jealous of something someone else has in the past year, whether materially or relationally? Yowzers. Have you tried to hide or to lessen a sin in the past year? Have you gossiped in the past year? Have you thought more highly of yourself than you should have in the past year? Everybody clap your hands on this one. (laughs) Have you been slow to forgive those who have hurt you? Kids or adults, have you dishonored your mom or your dad in the last year? Now, one more. Of all the sins that I've listed so far, have you wanted or even desired to do any of them? You guys are messed up. I want you to hear God's word declared over you. Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
You may be seated. I don't know about you, um, but I think this room is pretty messed up. Uh, apparently, you guys struggle with sin quite a bit. Now, there, there is this experience, I think, that people have when they come into a church, and they expect us to be really good people. And uh, here's the reality is, I am not a Christian because I am good. I'm a Christian because I am really messed up, because I am broken apart from Jesus Christ, and I need a Savior who will pay the price for my sins. Uh, I am a Christian fundamentally because I'm broken and I have no hope apart from Jesus Christ saving me. And so you start to get involved in a Christian community and you'll notice that we are sometimes just as messed up as everybody else. But here's what happens when we come to Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit and he reforms us or restructures us and reshapes us, hear the word, slowly. (laughs) Uh, It's frustrating, right? I mean, it is a slow process process as God through his Holy Spirit changes us. And so as we come to Good Friday, I got to tell you, I am so grateful that we have a Savior because apart from Jesus, I am helpless. I cannot change my heart. I need a God who can save me and change me. Somebody give me an amen on that one, right? And so I'm so excited to share a Good Friday message with you. And I want to preach out of Isaiah 53, one verse. I want to share with you just two beautiful truths out of this verse. And the verse is from Isaiah 53, Six, and the first point is simply this. On Good Friday, God is no victim. On Good Friday, God is no victim. Look at Isaiah 53, 6, and it says this at the beginning. The Lord has laid on him. Now, question, who is the Lord? Is it God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit? It's God the Father. And so we have God the Father is laying or putting something heavy on him. And who is him in this passage? Now we know this passage was written 700 years before Jesus was born. So we know now as we look back at the cross that this refers to Jesus. So who is the one actively laying something on another one? It is God the Father who is actively doing something to Jesus. I think sometimes we have this idea that God's just a poor God who just doesn't have any choice, and he's just so bummed. And don't get me wrong, I mean, this is a terribly sad and devastating event on many, many levels, but I want you to catch this. What happened on the cross to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, culminating in this moment, What happened was orchestrated and planned by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of the events that happened throughout Holy Holy Week are orchestrated by God from the foundations of the world before time even began. I want to read to you from the book of Acts, and Peter is preaching, and here's what he says. This Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. So pop quiz, if God the Father has a definite plan, can you do anything to change that? The answer is no. If it can Rome and all of their might and all of their power stop the definite plan of God in human history at any given point in time? Everybody, the answer is no, not at all. This was a definite plan. This plan was set in motion um, from the foundations of the world. Revelation chapter 13 says this, Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. That even before time existed, that this plan that God the Father would send his son, Jesus, that he would become flesh, and that God would pour out all of his just anger on Jesus for your sin and mine in his place. All of this was part of an organized, orchestrated plan in heaven before 
before the foundations of the world. Holy Week, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, all of these are not happy accidents, but a part of a definite plan that God the Father set in motion. But I want to make something very clear. Was Jesus a helpless victim on the cross? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus is God in the flesh, eternally preexistent. He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Uh, there is this emerging lie that I want to just, I want to help you address. And I'm starting to hear this more and more on the news. I've heard it actually from a couple individuals. And it's this claim that they reject Christianity and the gospel because it's cosmic child abuse. And that Jesus is a helpless victim. Any father who would punish his own, his own son for the sins of somebody else, illegitimate children, uh, Jesus is an abused child, and God the Father is a victimizer. And here's what this does not understand, is that Jesus is not some four-year-old little boy who is under the abusive hand of his dad. Jesus is eternally God, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit collaborated together in eternity past to put a plan together where they both willingly took their roles to accomplish for us and for God's glory what you and I could not do. You would be left helpless in your sins if it were not for this definite plan set in motion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Hear me, Jesus is no victim. In fact, Jesus, as he enters into these last weeks, is fulfilling the plan that him and the Father put in motion. Many people think that what Jesus did is he set a good example by being a good moral teacher and dying for people um, as an example of how sacrificial love works. And yeah, those are true, but hear me, this was measured, planned, and accomplished meticulously as God the Father and God the Son had planned it in eternity past. I'm going to read to you some scriptures that I think make this come to life. The book of Matthew actually marks a number of times when Jesus tells his disciples the plan. So I want to read some of these to you. Matthew chapter 16, uh, it's talking about Jesus' teaching. It says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And the next chapter, Matthew chapter 17, 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, by the way, who is the son of man? Jesus, he's talking about himself. I'm gonna start talking about myself in the third person. Right? Michael, no, kidding. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And what's their response? And they were greatly distressed. I mean, if they understood, they would say, we, we get it, we are so sorry, but we get it. You need to die on the cross for our sins, but you're going to be raised from the dead. And if they got it, would they have been crushed on the day that Jesus was dead in the way they were? No, they would have been sitting, chomping at the bit on the third day, waiting for Jesus to bust open that tomb, come out like he's the man, and say, I have conquered death, just waiting. But where were they? Definitely not waiting for a resurrected Jesus at the tomb. They were greatly distressed, is what Matthew 17, 23 says. Three chapters later in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem... He took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way, he said to them, he's going to just give them an overview. Guys, here's the plan. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, who is? 
Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Could Jesus be any more clear? Like anybody? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, man, you're—okay, we'll keep going. Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. We're two days away from Passover. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You know this, right, disciples? And they don't get it. Drives me nuts. Uh, Luke chapter 9 uh, says this about Jesus, that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. You know what this means? Jesus had a goal in mind. And that goal was to die in Jerusalem on a cross after he had been um, uh, flogged and scourged and mocked and tried. And that Jesus set his face and resolutely determined to go to the cross. This was the plan. Did Jesus die on purpose according to the plan of God? And your answer is absolutely yes. I mean, he could have stopped this. The Last Supper, he looks at Judas, and he says, basically, go do what you're going to do. I know you're going to betray me. Go do this. Now, Jesus and all the disciples could have held Judas down, right? He didn't. He said, let him go. Let, let him go. He's got, he's got a job to do. His job is to be filled with Satan and to, be, uh, to go betray the Son of Man. And so at that point, Jesus could have fled Jerusalem, right? He knows what's going to happen, but he doesn't. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas knows where he's going to be. And then all of the Roman soldiers come up to Gethsemane. You know what? Peter uh, gets real violent and tries to defend Jesus. And Jesus could have said, um, disciples, you have the power of God and angels in your hand. Go take out the Romans. Let's get out of here. He doesn't. He tells them, be quiet. This is, this is a part of the plan. Chill out. He goes before Pontius Pilate. He goes before Herod. Does he say a word? Nothing. In fact, they, they look at him and they say, defend yourself, basically. Like, do you hear the accusations against you? And he's completely quiet. He gets in front of the, uh, the, the high priest, Annas, and the, chief, uh, and the scribes and the Pharisees. And he responds to them in such a way that he incites them to anger. I mean, these people are already trying to kill him, and he's just toying with them and pushing their buttons. And it's like, Jesus, do you have a death wish? And the answer is, no, I have a death plan. Like, this is the intention. This is what is going to happen. This is why I became flesh. Christmas has no meaning without Good Friday, and Easter has no meaning without Good Friday either. And so this day is central to the purpose of why Jesus came. I want you to hear John 10, 17 and 18. I think Jesus says this so compellingly and beautifully. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Was Jesus a victim? No. Was God the Father a victim? No. Was it incredibly difficult and painful and gut-wrenching on every level that you can possibly imagine? Yes. But this was the plan, and this was the plan that would redeem humanity and bring the most amount of glory to God. When you and I get to heaven and we understand the complexity of what happened on the cross, we will say, oh my goodness, this is deeper than anything I could have possibly imagined. The second beautiful truth I want to share with you on Good Friday is this. On Good Friday, God is no victim, but a willing sacrifice for our sins. The 
passage goes on in Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord, God the Father, has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Iniquity literally means something that is crooked or bent. And judging by the way, y'all answered the questions earlier. You're fairly crooked and bent, so am I. Um, And uh, it also can mean, in that vein, it is a sin that produces much guilt. Um, A transgression is a willful violation of of a law, but an iniquity seems to be something that makes you very guilty. It's kind of on a different level at times. And so we find here is that everybody has iniquity. Everybody has this guilt that they carry with them. You can't get away from it. It's your sin nature. But here's the question. When this was written 700 years before Jesus died on the cross, who was Isaiah speaking about? the people who were living in that time. Fast forward 700 years to the cross where Jesus is hanging there. And here's what this means, is that the cross transcends time and history and reaches back in time and reaches into the future so that anyone, past, present, or future, who places their faith in Jesus Christ has their iniquity removed from themselves and put on Jesus. The Father laid on Jesus the sin, the iniquity, the transgression, the crookedness, the guilt of every one of us. He took our iniquity, puts it on Jesus, and he takes our place on the cross. Pop quiz number 35 tonight. Who should have been on the cross? Me and you. Me and you. And so we have this beautiful exchange that happens. And uh, here's what I want to do. I want to help illustrate this. I want to invite two of my friends up, Kevin and Trish Chandler. And Kevin and Trish have been attending Village Church for some time. Kevin is a cop, so if you mess with him, he'll shoot you. And uh, just kidding, right, Kevin? Totally kidding. And uh, this is his lovely bride, Trish, who is pregnant with number four. Woo, bring it on. And in this uh, metaphor, um, Kevin represents Jesus. Kevin, don't let this get to your head. I mean, you're good looking. Your bald head is amazing like mine, but, you know, that's right. Um, Kevin represents Jesus in this uh, metaphor. Now, Jesus is God in the flesh, eternally preexistent, beautiful, compelling, infinite in wisdom, spotless, holy, no flaw whatsoever, no sin, no unrighteousness. I mean, when you see Jesus, you're going to fall, fall flat on your face and say, woe is me, I'm a sinner, uh, and you're going to worship him because he's going to be amazing. So here's Jesus, uh, and he is uh, um, perfect in every way. And then Trish represents the church. Uh, no offense, Trish. Broken, right? Sinful, struggling, guilty. I mean, the weight of sin in our lives brings grief, sorrow, crookedness, or iniquity. And there is a punishment that she deserves under God because God is just. And and she deserves all this. This is the nature of the church. And so here's the deal. I'll be God the Father in this um, circumstance. Because I am just, sin needs to be paid for. And, And Kevin and I, God the Father and God the Son, in eternity past, put together a plan to redeem Trish, to redeem the church. Because there's nothing that Trish can do to get out of her sin plight. She is guilty and crooked and filled with transgressions. And she is broken and sorrowful. She needs a Savior. She can try as hard as she wants to be good, but she's stuck. She can't change her own heart. She can't forgive her own sins. And all of the debt she has before God, she can't pay for it. I mean, she is broken and stuck. And so God the Father and God the Son put together a plan, and God became flesh in Jesus Christ. And he comes to Trish, and God, Jesus, takes her grief from her and gives her his peace. 
God goes to the church. Jesus takes from the church her sorrow and gives her his joy. You see the exchange. Jesus goes to the church and he takes her transgressions and he gives her his righteousness. He goes and he takes her crookedness and her iniquities and gives her his pure innocence. And then finally, the wounds that she deserves, he takes from her and gives her his healing. The other verbs that are spoken of, of what Jesus went through in Isaiah 53, I want you to follow with me, and I want you to just hear the weight of the verbs that Jesus had to bear on the cross. Despised, rejected, esteemed not, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, scourged, oppressed, slaughtered, imprisoned, judged, cut off, and killed. Whose punishment was that supposed to be? The church's, yours. And Jesus enters into time and space purely flawless, holy, righteous. And there is this exchange of punishment, and there's an exchange of identity. No longer, no longer is the church filled with grief and sorrow, but now they are filled with joy and peace. No longer are they seen as crooked and iniquity. Now they are seen as righteous and pure and holy. I mean, Jesus, somehow, God in the flesh, is now seen perfect and spotless. He is treated as if he is now sin. I want to read to you another passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Is this a bad deal for, for, for Jesus? Absolutely. Like, what would possibly drive Jesus to give all of this to the church and then to take from the church all of her punishment, all of her sin? I love the way that um, Galatians 3.13 says it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This quote is one of my favorites. God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. God treated Jesus as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though he was perfectly innocent of any sin. Isn't that beautiful? This is the exchange. He gets our junk we get riches more than we could possibly imagine. He bears our sin and becomes a curse for us. We get his righteousness and his wealth, meaning spiritual wealth, eventually a new heaven and a new earth. We get everything, and he gets all of our junk. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. I don't know about you. I love being a Christian. I love that there is the God who made everything, who spoke and matter existed. He has set his affection on me despite my rebellion and my iniquity and my crookedness. My God, the only God, truthfully, that has ever existed nor, or, or will ever exist, became flesh for me and for you. And he took on my sin. He took away all of my iniquity and gave me his righteousness in this beautiful exchange. And God no longer sees me and anyone in Christ as iniquitous or crooked or broken, but now sees us as righteous beautiful, an exchange of punishment 
an exchange of identity. I want to close and I want to read to you a quote from one of my favorite authors who I think captures the beauty of what happens in this exchange more than anyone I've ever read. And this exchange in theology terms, it's called substitution, that one person takes the place of another. And I want to read to you this from John Piper. This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus, substitution. This is the great message of good news that God has for rebel subjects who are willing to lay down our rebellion. Instead of collapsing in grief over our rejection, he bears our griefs. Instead of increasing our sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of avenging our transgressions, he is pierced for them in our place. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, he is crushed for them as our substitute. And all the chastisement and whipping that belong to us for our rebellion, he takes on himself in order that we might have peace and be healed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are the church and we are broken. And you love us anyway. From eternity past, I'm so grateful that you put this plan into motion. And at the right time, at that right point in history, Jesus, you became flesh in the incarnation. God, I'm so grateful that Jesus, for the entire duration of his life, was sinless despite all of the temptations that we face because there was no sin in him in any way. I thank you that Jesus was pure and spotless and righteous. And I thank you that he willingly, though with difficulty, willingly went to the cross and took our grief and our pain and our iniquities and our trespasses and our chastisement. And God, we sit here as a forgiven people, though struggling, you treat us as if we have no sin. You see us as a son or daughter. I'm just so grateful for that. And on behalf of every believer in this room, I just say thank you, thank you, thank you. And so God, as we come to this communion table, as we celebrate, I pray that your Holy Spirit would well up inside of each of us gratitude. And so God, we thank you for the cross and all God's people said, amen.